I first saw the title of this article, I had to read more about it. It was from the Times UK. It was written by a commentator named Matthew Paris, who had lived his childhood in Africa. And he said this, as an atheist, I truly believe Africa needs God. With a title like that, you have to click on it and see what he had to say. And so he had been a, he had spent his childhood in Africa, lived in the UK for some 45 years, and then went back there. And he, he, what he saw really kind of amazed him. This is what he said. Traveling in Malawi refreshed another belief too. One I've been trying to banish all my life, but an observation I've been unable to avoid since my African childhood. It confounds my ideological beliefs stubbornly refuses to fit my worldview and has embarrassed my growing belief that there is no God. Now a confirmed atheist, I become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa, sharply distinct from the work of secular NGOs, government projects, and international aid efforts. These alone will not do. Education and training alone will not do. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings a spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good. I used to avoid this truth by applauding, as you can, the practical work of mission churches in Africa. It is a pity, I would say, that salvation is part of the package. But Christians, black and white, working in Africa, do heal the sick, do teach people to read and write. And only the severest kind of secularists could see a mission hospital or school and say the world would be better without it. And then he's forced to admit this. The Christians were always different. Far from having cowed or confined as converts, their faith appeared to have liberated and relaxed them. There was a liveliness, a curiosity, an engagement with the world, a directness in their dealings with others that seemed to be missing in the traditional African life. They stood tall. I remember as I've read that article initially and as I've gone back to it um, through the years, I can't help but wonder if like a proud parent, Jesus' heart doesn't swell with pride to hear this because this is exactly what he is after. He wants his followers to be different. He wants his followers to be engaged with the brokenness of this world. And today we're gonna take a look at uh, some specific teachings of Jesus on this issue. It's found in the Gospel of Matthew, and it's actually in the last section of five different blocks of teaching of Jesus. This is basically the last teaching that he gives, according to Matthew. And we're going to look at it because what Jesus says is at once sobering, maybe a little bit shocking, but it's audacious and it's hopeful all at the same time. And so I want us to, to look at this passage this morning together as we continue on this series. And we're going to call our study today, When Jesus Takes It personally. And so we're going to be in Matthew chapter 25, uh, near the end of that chapter, beginning at verse 31. But as we get ready to, to dive in there, I wonder if you would pray with me one more time as we um, ask the Lord to, to teach us this day. Lord, as we gather here this morning, many of us come in here uh, just dialed in and wanting to focus in on what Jesus calls us to do. Others of us come in here this morning, we're, we're just simply exhausted, we're distracted, and we, just, we need refocusing upon you. Help us to, to take these words of Jesus to heart. Help us to hear how he wants them to mold us and to, to shape us, the kind of people that he wants to form us into. And give us ears to hear and hearts to receive these things. And may we all be strengthened and warmed and challenged by your grace this morning. 
In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we begin in verse 31, and this is what Jesus says. We're about two days away from his arrest and betrayal and crucifixion. So Jesus says to his disciples, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. So you look at these words of Jesus right here, and you kind of want to ask the question, what's going on here? Who is this Son of Man? What is he talking about coming in glory with angels and and sitting on his glorious throne? What you need to know is that Jesus' own favorite designation for himself is this phrase, the Son of Man. And for those listening to him, they would have understood exactly what Jesus was saying. This phrase comes from about 500 years plus before the time of Jesus when a prophet by the name of Daniel was given a vision about the future. And this is what Daniel said. This is what he saw. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, a reference to God, and was presented before him. So there's this person who's presented to God. His name is the son of man. And Daniel says, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So when Jesus uses this phrase, the son of man, to speak of himself, he's making an audacious claim. He is saying, I am that one that Daniel saw that was presented before God who will be given the kingdoms of this world, who will reign and rule over this world and set everything to right. Now, for our ears, that sounds a little bit interesting, a little bit odd, but that's exactly what people were hoping for in that day, the promised Messiah, the chosen one, this coming king, to come and to rule and to set this world to right. And so Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes, he will sit on his glorious throne. So this is when Jesus is saying, he's, he's making the claim, I'm going to set this world to right. And when that happens, this is, what go, this is what's going to take place. Before him, that is the Son of Man, will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. So Jesus is saying, when that day comes, when I'm recognized as the true and rightful king of this world, When God gives me all authority, I will gather the nations before me and I will separate the people. And on the right side, I will put the sheep. And on the left side, I will put the goats. This is pretty weighty, isn't it? I mean, if you can get the magnitude of what Jesus is saying and what he's claiming here, uh, this this is intense. Verse 34, then the king... Notice the Son of Man is is the king. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. What amazing words these are. Look at that again. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Wouldn't it be amazing to hear those words of Jesus spoken to you? Wouldn't you want to be included in those people that Jesus says, come, you are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Those would be stunning words, electrifying words, orienting words. You see, this entire planet that we lived on called Earth 
was originally designed to be God's kingdom. God created humanity to co-rule this place with him, to spread his kingdom over the face of this planet, to, to, to love and to cultivate this world. And as the story of the scriptures tell us, mankind went off tracks. We wanted to be our own rulers, to do what was right in our own eyes. And so God promised from, from the very beginning that he would send one who would undo the mess that humans got ourselves into, and he would set this world to right. And so Jesus here is saying, there is a kingdom that the Father wants to bring, and blessed are you who inherit it. There's another time in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he tells them to not fear. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So Jesus says there is a kingdom coming. It's when he will set this world to right. And he says to those on his right, blessed are you by my Father, for you will receive this kingdom as an inheritance. And then he gives us the reason why. You want to know why these people received it? This is what Jesus said. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Fascinating words that Jesus says here. He says, I was in these positions. I was in need, and you came and you ministered to me. This is the characteristic of, of my sheep. You did this for me. You loved me. You pursued justice. You loved mercy. You walked humbly with your God. You responded to me when I was in need. And this interesting. The righteous, those that Jesus is speaking to, will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? <laughs> in one sense, they're kind of like, what is Jesus talking about? When, when, when did we see him like this? I mean, if we had seen you like this, Jesus, we would have done that. But when did we see you? Here's this phrase, the righteous. And I know some of you who've been around Christianity for a little while, done, done some reading in your Bible, will come here and say, oh, wait a minute, I thought the Bible said there's no one righteous. <laughs> and if you think that, you're, you're right, the Bible does say that. There is no one righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. It's the Apostle Paul quoting the Old Testament scriptures that Jesus was raised on. And he says, look, compared to the righteous standard of God, perfection, no one is righteous. In fact, no one seeks God. This is our natural condition. We come with a bent towards ourselves. We come to, with a bent wanting our own. But see, here's the thing. Jesus is the truly righteous one, the one who had a bent toward God, who loved perfectly, who did all things well. And he died in the place of unrighteous people like you and me. And so that when we believe in Jesus, we who are unrighteous are united to Christ and everything that he has becomes ours. His righteousness, his perfect life actually is credit to us. We, we get it because we're united to him. This is how Paul would later say it in that same letter. He's, he's comparing kind of two figureheads of humanity, Adam and Jesus. And he said, for if by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, speaking of Adam and his rebellion, how much more 
with those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So it says basically, look, if our figurehead Adam turned his back upon God and the repercussions of that were felt throughout the rest of humanity, there's, this another, there's another figurehead. His name is Jesus. And what he did also has repercussions that go throughout all of his people. So they receive the abundance of God's provision of grace in Jesus. They also get the gift of righteousness so that they may reign through the one man, Jesus. So here's the question. How do we reign in life? God gives us the gift of his grace, the provision of righteousness, so that we will reign in life with Christ. How do we reign in life? The simple answer from the scriptures in multiple different ways and different angles is simply, when we do justice, when we love mercy, we walk humbly with God, we reign in life. Or to put it in another way, when we love God, when we love others, we are reigning the way that God intended and the way that Jesus rescues us to reign in this world. So let's look back at that passage that Jesus was um, teaching us in. The righteous will answer him, Lord, when do we see you? When do we see you? When do we see you? He said you're in all these difficult positions and in need, but when do we see you? Listen to what Jesus said in answer to that question. Verse 40, the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Interesting. Jesus says that when we feed the hungry, when we give someone who, who needs water, water to drink, when we clothe the destitute, when we welcome the stranger, and let me just say that word stranger in the history of Jesus' people means the foreigner, the immigrant. When we welcome those who are not a part of our people into our people, when we visit the sick, we visit those in prison. Jesus says, you're doing that for me. And so the question becomes, who's he speaking about directly? And he says, one of the least of these, my brothers. A lot of people see in that Jesus referring specifically to his disciples. When we, when we treat his disciples who are in need, um, we, we receive, Jesus receives that as if we do it to him. And that's certainly, I think, a good application. The apostle Paul would amplify it and say it, put it like this. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are in the household of faith. So as opportunities present itself, do good. But especially to those who are the household of faith, those who belong to Jesus. It's also interesting, earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, from which we're getting our text for the study today, uh, Jesus was interrupted in, in some of his teaching by some of his disciples who came to him and said, look, hey, your mother and your brothers are outside and they want to talk with you. And then Jesus says this, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching his, out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. I mean, if you've been Jesus' mother and brothers at the time, you'd be like, oh, well, isn't that interesting? But Jesus says, look, those who do the will of my Father in heaven, they're my true family. And so whether we take Jesus' words, whatever you do, the least of these, my brothers, as indicative of specifically disciples of Jesus who are in need, or if we expand that and apply it to uh, doing good to whoever, this is just what Jesus' people do, all right? 
So to summarize it, we could put it like this. Jesus takes the way we treat others very personally. If he says, whatever you have done to the least of these, my brothers, you have done to me, Jesus is wanting you to know that whenever you help, whenever you move into the brokenness of this world, whenever you seek to bring healing and comfort, Jesus says, it's as if you're doing it for me, to me. And that's, that's pretty neat. But there's also a word of warning. Jesus continues in verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Whew, Jesus. I think someone might say, whoa, this, this makes me really uncomfortable. I don't like talk about judgment and eternal fire and the devil and his angels and all that kind of stuff. What's, what's up with that? And let me just say, if you're uncomfortable with those words, I, I think you're meant to be uncomfortable. But that's not really the issue. The issue is not if we're uncomfortable. The issue is, is Jesus speaking the truth? When Jesus says he's going to come one day, set this world to right, and as he does that, he's going to put people on his right and people on his left. People on his right will come into his kingdom, and those on his left who did not live the way he called them to live will be excluded from his kingdom. I think we need to to seriously take Jesus at his word. It's not a question of whether it makes us comfortable, whether we like it. This isn't about, you know, a popularity contest or Jesus trying to, you know, influence people and win friends or however that phrase goes. Jesus is two days from being crucified. He's playing for keeps. This is a culmination of all he's been teaching. And he says it does matter the way we live. He's been preaching about the coming kingdom. And it's a kingdom of love. And those who have been defined by God's love and it's been magnified and amplified in their lives, they will be at home in this kingdom. And those who aren't wouldn't want to be a part of that kingdom. And so Jesus says to those on his left, depart from me, and here's the reason, for I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Do you see the question there? When did we see you, Jesus, and did not minister to you. Verse 45, then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to, the, to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment and the righteous into eternal life. These are sobering words, aren't they? And if these are true, we need to give all of our heart and attention to it, no matter how comfortable or uncomfortable it makes us, no matter how much we like it or don't like it. Jesus is saying, I'm going to come and set this world to right. And there's a kingdom I'm going to put in place that is defined by nothing but love. And there'll be people who are at home in that kind of kingdom. And there are people who are not. And so, here's the thrust of our message so far today. The way we treat others matters. And Jesus takes it very 
personally. My friends, can you see that from what we've studied so far? The way we treat other people, especially those who have needs, matters. And Jesus says he takes it very personally. So a couple points of application. The first point of application is simply this. Let's submit to the rule of Christ the King. Let, let's submit to the rule of Christ the King. If Jesus says that he is the Son of Man, which is a code way of saying he is the coming king of this world. And if Jesus says, I'm going to set this world to right, and part of setting that world to right is to make a division among people, then we should respond to the good news of Jesus by bowing our knee to him, by hearing what Jesus is saying, taking it seriously. In the Gospel of John, there's this one section where Jesus says this, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that is Jesus, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to also have life in himself. And he has given him authority. <laughs> Here's the Daniel 7, Son of Man language. God has given Jesus authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of life. Of judgment. My friends, Jesus is deadly serious. He's playing for keeps. He doesn't come just to give us some good advice. He doesn't come to give us a, a few pointers that if you follow what he has to say, you know, will kind of make your life go a little bit more smoothly. He comes to save us. He laid down his life in the place of people like you and me and conquered death and was raised again so that you and I could be welcomed into his kingdom, that we can be a part of that when he sets this world to right. My friends, let's make every effort to be a part of that. And the good news is it's, it's not, we, we don't go and say, okay, I gotta, I gotta put all my good works on one side and bad works on the other, and hopefully they weigh out. We believe in Jesus. We trust in him. We submit to him as our king. The way Paul put it in the book of Romans is like this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified, and with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. So my friends, when we think about this, the real question is, is what will you and I do with Jesus? Now, these are some, some hard words from the mouth of Jesus, no doubt. They're meant to grab our, our attention, to kind of awaken our conscience. But let's think about this for a minute. Either what Jesus said is true or it's not true, right? Either the things he said he meant because they were true or they weren't true. If they weren't true, what does that mean? That means that Jesus either knew they weren't true, and if that's the case, he's lying to us, and he's really a deceiver. But can we really go there? Jesus, the greatest person who ever lived, the wisest person who ever lived, a deceiver? I'm not going to park there. 
But maybe he really believed this, but it, it really is not true. He's not the son of man. He's not going to set this world to right. He's not going to judge anybody. Well, if that's the case, then Jesus is deluded. He's crazy. He's a lunatic. But I'm not going to park there either. Not, not Jesus. He's, he's not crazy. No one, some people might not like him, but no one says he was crazy. That leaves us with only one option, right? What he says is true. And if what he says is true, that means you and I will stand before Jesus one day. What will you do with Jesus? This wasn't a part of our original text that we we're studying, but I had to include it because the very next thing we find from the Gospel of Matthew is this. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders and the people gathered in the palace of the high priest and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. So Jesus has been preaching about the kingdom. The religious leaders aren't liking what he's saying. In fact, it's driving them crazy because he's saying that they're not going to be a part of that because they use religion as an excuse not to love. They're more concerned about their own power. And so what they decide to do with him is to kill him. So they did. Two days later, Jesus was betrayed. He was handed over, mercilessly flogged and beaten within an inch of his life and nailed to a cross where he died six hours later. They buried him. But as the good news tells us, three days later, he rose again from the dead. He conquered death. He has been crowned the king, the son of man, the son of God. He's reigning now in power. In fact, the last thing Jesus told his disciples is this. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is what he said after he rose again from the dead, giving his last instructions to his disciples. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so my friends, Jesus stands at the end of history for every person without exception. That means you will be there and I will be there. Everyone, when he gathers the nations before him, will stand before Jesus. And so let us submit to the rule of Jesus. He's gracious and kind, wants to forgive, wants to reconcile, wants to make us new creatures. The second point of application is this. Let's live out the reign of Christ the King. Now, let's just say at the end of the study this morning, I gave you a pop quiz. <laughs> Passed out a little piece of paper and I said, okay, I want you to write down the answer to this question. What does Jesus assume is true of his followers based on the passage we study today? What does Jesus assume is true of his followers? We might answer it in you know, different words, but hopefully somewhere around the the answer would be this idea. Jesus wants us to be engaged with this broken world. He really does want us to minister to those who are in need, to those who are hurting. This is part of the way that Jesus is recreating us in him to live and move and have our being. We looked at this verse just a couple of weeks ago. I want to bring it to your attention again. Apostle Paul, in amplifying the gospel of Jesus, said this, For by grace you have been saved, through faith, that is through believing, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. That is, we're, we're God's craft. We're his, his work of art. We're his workmanship, 
created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, when we've been recipients of the grace of Jesus, we're also meant to live out that grace of Jesus in the way that we live in this world. And part of the way we do that is there are a bunch of good works that God has for us to do, especially when it comes to the vulnerable. So in our series so far, we've been talking about what one scholar has called the quartet of the vulnerable, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, and the poor. Throughout the scriptures that Jesus read and studied, these designations were used specifically to describe those most vulnerable in society, those who are most likely to fall through the cracks, those who don't have a social security network to help them. And God describes his people when they pursue justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with him as engaged in meeting the needs. And here Jesus offers uh, just a few more categories. He talks about the hungry, the sick, the, the prisoner, those who, who need drink. So let's ask the question as we wind up our time together here. Since Jesus takes it personally, how can we love others in need? Now think about this for a second. If Jesus were to walk in this room right now, Number one, that would just be glorious and amazing. But if he walked in this room right now, how many of us would like fall over each other to get at his feet, to kiss his feet, to tell Jesus how much he means to us, how much we love him? And what if Jesus were to say to us, I know, I've seen the way that you treat people. I've seen the way that you've used your life, the talent, the treasures, the time I've given you to do good in this world. I, I know you love me. Wouldn't that, wouldn't that be amazing? It seems like that's kind of the answer, at least according to the text we looked at today, that Jesus might give. So since Jesus takes it personally, how can we love others in need? What if we were to open our eyes to see the community in which we live through the eyes of Jesus? And what if we could look at our community as just opportunities left and right to actually love Jesus and serve him? What would it look like for us to, to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God when it comes to those in our community who are, who are not yet born, for the single parent, for those in need of, of child care, for, for folks in foster care, for those in, in need of adoption, for those who need help with adoption, for the strangers, for the immigrants, for the refugees in our midst, for those who wonder because of the color of their skin if their lives matter. For those who are sick in need of care, for those who are in need of mental health care, for those living with chronic pain, for those who are disabled, for the widows and the widower, for those in the wake of a divorce, for the elderly, for the lonely, for those in prison, for those on death row? How about structurally for things like prison reform? What about those who are impoverished, the addicted, the hungry, the homeless, the oppressed, the afflicted, the persecuted, the fatherless, the motherless, for those with no voice, for those enslaved to lives? My friends, since Jesus takes it personally, there are a myriad of ways that we can show love. 
And in fact, if you stop and think about it, we could easily get overwhelmed. So the question isn't, can you address all these needs? The question is, is what are you going to do with the time you've been given, with the talents and the treasures you've been given to help bring healing to this broken world? If Jesus was sitting in a neighborhood in Bryan, hungry and in need of clothing, wouldn't you go there? Of course you would. Jesus is saying, there, there are folks in this community who need you to minister to them. May we not be among those who say to Jesus, when did we see you and not minister to you? May he say instead, whatever you did for the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did for me. Mercy Hill Church, in a world filled with brokenness and hurt, may you tangibly love this world to life because Jesus takes it very personally.